and for everyone listening, uh, they knew the, like the first 200 episodes when all I did was talk about Raven Rock by Garrett Graff, and then I finally got him on. Everyone who's been listening from the beginning knows how many times I've talked about the Einsatzgruppen, about Dark Sun, about making the atomic bomb, and energy. And now the stars have aligned. Mr. <laughs> Richard Rhodes on my podcast. Please introduce yourself, sir. Uh, I'm Richard Rhodes. I'm a professional writer. Uh, my best-known book is probably The Making of the Atomic Bomb, but I've written 26, as of a couple of weeks from now, 27 books, uh, and they're all over the place. But they all have in common one fundamental issue, which is human violence, what causes it, how we can protect ourselves from it, and how it might be resolved. And we were just we were just talking beforehand, and, and I'll get into it. But and I told you that I've never done this with an author before. And as anyone that watches this podcast knows, I I fanboy over authors. But I can actually say I've never done this. I'm about to do, and I'm I'm going to do it. And it's about the book Masters of Death, the SS Einsatzgruppen, and the invention of the Holocaust. Never in I have 1,086 titles in my Audible library. Never have I ever read listened to a book before and felt an obligate there's nothing i dislike more than people proselytizing or hey you know have you heard of the jehovah's witnesses or can i get you to phone bank for this person i i never like when people outwardly push things on anyone but i'm now going to be what i hate if everyone listening to this podcast you you need to get this book because i mean on top of the fact that it's it's well written it's, it's a great narrator just surface level the importance of understanding what happened not even a century ago. And I do believe our, and I, and I, and I hate this too, but our social responsibility. And I, I've never felt the need to, you know, I, I, I talk to my mom every night. I've never felt the need to say, you need to listen to this. You, you, you know, it's, it's on 9-11, I always make sure to watch videos of the towers on fire. I always make sure to watch videos of people jumping to their deaths, not because I like it, but because I go, that happened, that was real. This book, I thought I knew a decent amount about uh, the Nazis, um, even maybe a little more uh, esoteric knowledge, uh, KL by Nicholas Foschman about the uh, creation of the concentration camps, um, killing the SS, um, by O'Reilly. Um, all these books, you, you learn, uh, Night by Eli Wiesel. Uh, I, I vividly remember him talking about, you know, you know, how do I, why do I talk about things that quote unquote didn't happen, throwing babies in burning pits? It's because I saw them. Or, you know, he talks about seeing two grown men fight to the death for a scrap of bread in the back of an, of a roofless train car on his 14th birthday. I thought I knew a, a decent amount. And as I told you, um, because I'm a normal kid, uh, I used to go on Wikipedia in high school and I would love just going into well-known articles and then going in and finding the, the links in the periphery, right? We, I knew all about, uh, you know, strategic air command and NORAD. And then I learned about SDI and I was like, oh, that's cool. But then you go more in depth and you can find these things that no one really ever talks about, like these defense programs called like Marauder and uh, Shiva Star, true like Reagan Star Wars stuff. And I remember 
going into, you know, okay, well, we have the first learned, okay, okay, Nazis, they're bad. And then, you know, I was maybe 16 and I was like, oh, there was a thing called the Wehrmacht. Oh, okay. And then you go, oh, SSSA. And you go, oh, there's kind of these little just curiosity. And I remember reading Sonderkommando. And then I always remember one term, just because it stuck out in my mind, Einsatzgruppen and mobile death squads. And it always was listed as, uh, you know, the most evil. But it kind of stuck in my mind just because it was, I mean, if anything, kind of like a, a comical, just long German rough, you know, Einsatzgruppen. And it never really, and I remember used to think, mobile death squads sure that's bad and you'd read okay they had gas vans and i remember always thinking but that doesn't hold a candle to auschwitz like why why is that not until listening to your book did i ever actually know that these led to the concentration camps and the things they did the horrors they went through and the irony of it all is not the horrors that the jews went through it was the horrors that the Einsatzgruppen went through that they felt the need to protect themselves. And it was nothing about, uh, it, it, it's right. It'd be like if we invented drones to zap terrorists, not because it was more humane for them, but because we realized our airmen were going through PTSD from dropping bombs. So I lay all of that out to say, going into this book and truly learning Things that were too horrible for the Nazis is what led to the concentration camps. Everyone listening, I please, I have never done this before, and you have my word, I'll never do this again, and I hope I don't end up eating my words one day like George Bush, no new taxes. <laughs> please go get this book. I don't get a penny from this. This isn't Mr. Rhodes giving me some cash under the table. Please go get this book. It's on Audible. Buy the physical book. I don't care. Listen through it, go through the stages I went through of of shock, of nausea, and then just cold sobriety. And it is your obligation because if we don't understand how it began, we are doomed to repeat ourselves. And I'm sure people listening to this podcast are going, this is false advertising because I tuned in for an interview with Richard Rhodes, and now I'm just listening to Tommy monologue. But that's what I had to get out. I've never done that before, and I don't think I'll ever do that again. I do believe it is our obligation as individuals, not even as Jews or Sinti or Roma or homosexuals or gypsies, it is or Germans. It is our obligations as human beings alive in a time not even a hundred years removed from this. The as as the book concludes beyond the depths of even the most imaginative horror writer is what this is. So with that, Mr. Rhodes, how would you like to chime in? <laughs> well, look, let's, let's start kind of at the beginning. There is a general tradition in the history of the Holocaust that, that the Jews were going to be killed en masse from the beginning. And that's not true, as I found. What, in fact, was the problem, as Hitler saw it, Hitler saw all the other countries in Europe going through the phase of colonialism where they acquired vast territories in Africa and wherever. Germany missed that because Germany really didn't coalesce into one country until after 1870. 
with, with Bismarck and all of those people. So he felt that they needed a colonial presence as well as a place to gather food for Germany and as a place for their expanding population to expand into. And he saw that as, as Russia and Poland, Eastern Poland in particular. So his idea was, we've got to clear out the people who are there. Well, the Poles, he considered more or less human, if somehow sub-human sub in a way. So he was basically going to enslave them. But he, he had this kind of standard anti-Semitism that was prevalent all over Europe. Everybody was anti-Semitic in Europe in those days. That didn't lead to killing Jews. One of the mistakes is the belief that it was the anti-Semitism that led directly to the killing. Not so. His problem was, how do we clear out all these provinces? And the Jews, he thought, well, we've got to move them somewhere else. So there's an early period in the Holocaust era where the Germans are trying to move them to Madagascar, uh, to other places around the world, third world places, and needless to say, for various reasons, that didn't work out. Either the countries involved didn't want to take in Jews because of the general anti-Semitism all over the world, uh, or, or the conditions were not right. So gradually, this became an increasing problem for the Nazi uh, authorities. What do we do with all these Jews? We don't want them around. we got to get rid of them. And... This kind of coalesced around the decision that Hitler made to invade the Soviet Union. The reason for invading the Soviet Union was to take over all of that territory and turn it into a vast colony. In fact, Hitler had this vision, sort of Roman vision, that his stout-hearted troops would become uh, soldier farmers in their retirements. They would be given land, kind of way, the way land was given in the American West, uh, to colonize in eastern Poland and in Russia, where there were vast areas of rich grain growing uh, in Ukraine and elsewhere. So, so the idea was to move them into those areas, but, but they had to get ready, everybody else out. So when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in the 2nd of June, 1941, he had a group of special forces. Einsatzgruppen means special groups or special forces who were mostly SS. Some of them were uh, uh, police, German police. And remember, the German police were a lot more violent than even our police are these days. <laughs> Under the Nazi regime, they were allowed to arrest people without cause and throw them into camps and kill, shoot them and so forth. The first concentration camps had already been opened in places like Dachau in, in, uh, in Germany. So these special forces were to follow behind the German army the Wehrmacht, as it invaded and passed through Poland and Ukraine and into the Soviet Union, which Hitler believed would fall by, by Christmas. Yeah. This was the 2nd of June. And by Christmas, he figured they would have taken over the place because his troops were so superior to those, those dumb Russians that, of course, it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, 
the SSB, Einsatzgruppen, following behind the army as it moved through these Polish communities. First started out by getting Polish partisans and Lithuanian partisans and Latvian partisans, if you think of the movement across Central Europe, to start knocking off people. I, I found one scene that I thought was very typical where a crowd had gathered in a square and there was a big burly uh, Lithuanian guy who had a big heavy crowbar and they people would push Jews into the center of the circle and he would beat them to death with the crowbar and the crowds would cheer. So that sense of lawlessness, that sense of we can do whatever we want here. It was encouraged by the Einsatzgruppen because they hadn't yet decided they would have to do the work themselves. So the first killings that were done, June and early July, uh, they would go into a town, usually typically a village, and they would get the local uh, uh, chief of police and some of the, whoever local military were available, and they would tell them, round up the Jews and the partisans, uh, any communists, and it was generally assumed by Hitler that the communists were all Jews as well, and move them out to the edge of town. Then they would have some prisoners of war, typically, dig a trench or open an existing gully or find a place where there was a tank barrier and enlarge that. And then they would line up these people from the local village at the edge of the trench and shoot them. In it Stand there and shoot them in the, in the, in, while they were facing these people they were killing. And the people would then fall backward into the pit. And when the pit was where they killed all the Jews in that town, maybe 40, 50 people. Uh, they would then have it covered over and they move on to the next town. So when I went through Lithuania, for example, we would, my wife and I would go into a village and we would say, where did they kill the Jews? And whoever we asked would say, oh, it's two kilometers down this, this dirt road and then take a left. You'll find a little forest out in the middle of the fields. That's where we grow our trees for our firewood and so forth. And, and the mound is in there. And we would drive out there and we'd walk back into this little piece of forest. Uh, I remember it was springtime and there were afraid of wild strawberries all over the ground. It was a beautiful little setting. And then back in the middle of this, this little forested area was a mound about maybe two, three feet high, maybe 20, 30 feet wide. Many of them had never been marked. And I was there in 1990-something. So all those years later, some of them had little picket fences around them that probably the local Jewish community had put up. And there still, all these years later, was this mound of where people had been killed and buried collectively together. So that was the way they decided they would handle this problem of, of getting rid of the Jewish part of the population. They were going to work the Poles to death and the Russians, but they had to get rid of the Jews because from their perspective, the Jewish men were like guerrilla fighters. Mm -hmm. They were going to sabotage what the, what the Germans were doing. And under those circumstances, they felt they had to kill them in order to protect the military as it moved forward and to pacify the community. 
So at first, and this is important to the sequence, at first they largely only killed men of military age, basically boys from 14 to men up to about 40, 45 years of age. They didn't kill very many women. I have here on my screen uh, a translation of the Jaeger report, which was put together at the end of this period in 1941, that with typical German efficiency, lists by number the exact number of people who were killed in various places. And it's interesting to look here as for a, a fortress in the town of Cowan in Poland, where a lot of people were killed. Uh, and this says, 2 July 1941. So that's when the invasion began. On my instructions and orders, the following executions were conducted by Lithuanian partisans, 416 Jews, 47 Jewesses. And then the next day, in a one big massacre, 2,514 Jews, not distinguished by, by uh, gender. So then as we go down through July, you see that pattern. 21 Jews, one Russian, nine Lithuanian commissars for a total of 31. Uh, 39 Jews, 14 Jewesses, total of 53. And on and on. And then as we get to August, a change comes in the numbers. All of a sudden, they're not only killing men, but they're killing women too. So in August, let's see. We've got... 170 Jews, 33 Jewesses. And by September, we're up to collectively listing the numbers now. We've got 3,200 Jews, Jewesses, and Jewish children. So they're killing not only women, but also children now. Why are they doing that? What led to the change? Sometime in July, Hitler was convinced by the reports he was getting as his army swept through Ukraine and Eastern Europe and just moved an enormous amount of distance every day because the, it was a surprise attack. The Russians had made a deal with Germany that they would stay neutral and that therefore Germany wouldn't attack on the Eastern Front it would attack on the Western Front. But Hitler decided to do both at once, which was a fatal mistake on his part. So it was in July that Hitler made the decision that now that they were really rolling, they might as well just kill Jewish, all the Jews, not just men of military age. Well, if you're a soldier, you've been taught that killing men who are by definition, enemy soldiers threatening your life, is defensive violence. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of violence that anyone justifies to protect themselves and the people they value. Under those circumstances, people don't begin, don't start thinking of themselves as inherently violent people. Because when you make that move from defensive violence to offensive violence to what we would call criminal violence, you start attacking and injuring and killing people who are not threatening you. And that's what happened here when the 
transition occurred from killing Jewish men of military age, whom the police forces and the Einsatzgruppen and the people in the Wehrmacht who were helping out, and even the local police and so forth who were helping out, could construe to be dangerous and therefore feel justified in killing. But when you start killing women and children, it's really hard to make that case. And it's at this point that the Einsatzgruppen, who, by the way, now have taken over the killing, they realized it really wasn't very efficient to try and get the locals to do the killing for them. So they started doing it themselves, and they expanded their numbers. And as I said, brought in all these other forces. But now they're face, facing the fact that those people staring at them from the edge of these killing pits may be a mother holding a baby in her arms. And it's really difficult to, to convince yourself that she's a threat. So when the leadership saw that this was beginning to trouble the Einsatzgruppen and their, their forces, they began staging festivals for the feasts, banquets. They would have them get together in whatever town they were billeted in that day or that week. And they'd give the beer and they'd cheer and sing. Someone would speak and tell them how important they were to the fatherland. And the rationalization that I picked up with several places in the documents was, it's true, these are only little children and babies. But think about this, you've killed their parents. So they're going to want revenge. They're going to grow up wanting revenge. And when they reach the age when they're military people, they will come after your children and your wives and so forth. That really didn't, you know, it was hard to buy that. It was too, too distanced from this very direct and shocking experience of facing the people you're killing, shooting a mother with the baby so that you can kill them both with the same, same shot or having the mother hold the baby over her head so that they could shoot them separately and be sure they both were killed. Yeah. I mean, the horrors that were perpetrated by these people in the course of doing their duty as they conceived it, as, as dealing with the threat, began to really trouble them. And they began to break down. And if I, if I may insert, uh, yeah, sure. throwing the throwing the babies into the air to shoot them, uh, some of the sicker ones for sport, but also because the baby's bodies were uh, so small, so the bullet would pass through and go off into the horizon right. as opposed to ricocheting and hurting the fellow Nazis. Right. Um, many of the men who were involved in this began to break down and break down in the sense of they were psychologically deeply troubled and traumatized by what they were doing. You can't stand there and shoot people in the head all day and watch their blood and their brains spatter on your boots, which happened, yeah. even happened to Himmler. And one of the one time he ever went to see one of these Einsatzgruppen slaughters without developing trauma. I mean, you're protected from trauma to a degree when you're a soldier killing soldiers. But you're not really protected from trauma when you're killing women and children. So the, the typical breakdown was they all started getting drunk all the time. And that obviously was a dis disciplinary problem and had to be dealt with. But some of them developed 
passed on through the stages of violent socialization, which I described in the previous book, and which was a model for how people become violent, developed by a really brilliant and original American criminologist. We can talk about that a little bit later. But you go through stages of becoming violent, and typically at first, because it's so dangerous to use violence against other human beings, your first stage is to become defensively violent, to only use serious violence if you're being seriously threatened. Okay, so that's the military condition. As long as you stay there, you tend not to think of yourself as a violent individual. You don't use violence outside the context of defensive violence. But when you start killing women and children, one thing that can happen is you can feel made more powerful by that. You can feel that people look at you with fear and respect. And one of the ways that the people passed anywhere where they're becoming violent, kids on the street, gangs, pass from defensive violence to offensive violence to criminal violence is because of the immense feeling of power that comes when people get out of your way, when you walk down the street, that comes when people defer to you and listen to you and pretend at least that they respect you greatly. That makes many people who have typically been brutalized previously because an earlier stage of becoming violent is you're mistreated, you're, you're brutalized, and becoming violent is typically partly a process of trying to find a way past being pushed around all the time. Yeah. Thus, the kid who's bullied in school later becomes the school shooter. Yeah, That's the familiar pattern we've seen in our country. And, and was probably bullied at home. As well, yeah, which is the typical thing where they kill their parents before uh -huh. they go to school and shoot up their classmates. Yeah. yeah. So, and Germany was a very brutal society. I looked into the statistics about about how children were raised in Germany in mm -hmm. the first half. They were pretty brutally treated. So there was a kind of a pool of people who were who had been through some of the earlier stages of, of violent socialization as children. So if, if I may insert again, I know yeah. I keep interrupting you, uh, okay. Adolf Hitler, right? Being just brutally beaten by his father, the dog being beaten until the dog would wet the floor, the son running away. Um, and then right. Himmler father made him kept a journal or a diary and then would also look through it. So it's, you're removing all of these, right? It's taking the privacy. It's, it's beating you senseless. Everything you do is inflicting hatred and, Back to what you said about Himmler in the book is, you know, no privacy, right? Well, eventually, what's the biggest thing you can take away from others? Take away their life. So you yeah. see the, yeah. and it's at the risk of humanizing them, the Nazis. There is, I think, something deep inside of us that even if it, you know, was it Mark Twain that said he prays for the devil because no one has prayed for he who needs it the most? I find somewhere in me, I'm like, where is there some... Is there something you can, even if a sliver of a sliver of an ounce, can you look at Hitler with some sort of empathy and go, his dad was a demon, his a uh, Himmler. And it, that doesn't mean that these guys shouldn't be hung and quartered, but you can find well, yeah, something in you and go, 
There are choices that are made along the way. Yes, absolutely. A lot of teenage suicides, especially with boys, may relate to they're coming to the point where they either have to decide to use violence. On others or themselves. Or another alternative is to leave the scene by committing suicide. That's not the only reason. But so typically these kids have been been, uh, bullied in school. Yeah. You see them at that stage in their development. Yeah. So Yeah, back to what you're saying. Some of the people in the Einsatzgruppen who were doing these mass killings, rather than become drunks or or have psychological breakdowns, and the SS actually opened a mental hospital Mm -hmm. north of Berlin just for these guys so they could recuperate from their trauma that they were going through and doing all this mass killing. Uh, And let me just quickly insert, we're not just this in order to bring sympathy to these. They made their choices, and their choices were horrible, and they deserved what they got. Nevertheless, as is true with any violent individual, they're responsible for their decisions, but society is responsible for allowing the conditions to continue that make it possible for these things to happen to children and young people and military recruits. So there's a, there's a responsibility on both sides. And we're just looking at the picture here of how this happened because it was such an enormous period of of horrible killing. If so, if I can, yeah, if I can interrupt you again, we're now, it's, uh, I've interviewed this guy several times who's in the Israeli special forces, Syred, right? And, uh, I remember asking him, I was like, man, you must really hate terrorists, right? You're, you're a Jewish military man. And he goes more than I hate Hezbollah. He goes, I feel so bad for them. And he goes, yeah. because if you were raised in an area, no dentistry, you've never seen a television, you don't even know what America is, and you're making two cents a week, and then some rich guy comes along and says, I'll give you $1,000 if you shoot this RPG at that military convoy, and you're looking at it as, this can change my life. He goes, now I have to kill him. He goes, make no, he goes, that guy made a choice. But he goes, you do, at the core of your humanity, in your heart, you know that things led to this that that guy didn't choose. So... As you said, by no means are we trying to to justify what they did. They made choices. They're adults. Right. But, but you have to look into your heart and go, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's dark all around. I'll stop interrupting you now. So you're saying, yeah. That's a great, that's a great example. That yeah. really is. Yeah. And I think that's typical of soldiers who yeah. maintain defensive violence and haven't moved beyond that. So the ones that really bothered Himmler among the Einsatzgruppen were those who, rather than break down, moved on to to, uh, criminal violence in Himmler's eyes by coming to enjoy the killing, beginning to, to take pleasure in the killing, which I think anyone who has never been around violence really has trouble understanding. But like all human expression, it's possible to find satisfaction in things that that the rest of us think are truly, truly evil, especially because of the power that's associated with it. People who are are seriously violent, as all of us know, who cross the street when the bully from the neighborhood goes by, are afraid of violent people, as we well should be. They might attack you with no apparent reason. Maybe you just looked at them wrong. That does happen quite a lot in the world of violent people. So there were rewards for going ahead and deciding you were going to 
use violence whenever the hell you felt like it. And these were the people, the guys who would go out after hours and go hunting Jews on their own. Now, curiously, Himmler, you brought up Heinrich Himmler. Himmler was the head of the Nazi SS. He was really maybe second only to Hitler in his authority in, the, in that particular world, within the Nazi party at least, because the SS was a separate military force under the control of the Nazi party. It's as if the Republicans had an army sure. today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, yeah, a, a so, political paramilitary force within right, the exactly. state. So And Himmler was overall in charge of them, and he was the one who was trying to solve what he saw as a very difficult problem. He understood it was traumatic for his, his men. Uh, of what do you do with all these Jews who are clotting up, if you will, in the countryside, where we want to develop our yeoman farmer, mm -hmm. uh, soldier farmer, to, to, to raise wheat for our great people. Uh, but what really troubled him he wanted people, as he told them, to fight out of duty, which is basically to say defense of the violence. Yes. But he didn't want them to take pleasure in it. That, he believed, was bestial. And now, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put a pin in guys? No, he wasn't. He was another category. He'd been through quite a bit of the violent socialization process. So had Hitler. You mentioned Hitler's father. When Hitler ran away from home as a boy to get away from all this violence that his father was beating him up with all the time, when he when his father caught him and dragged him home, he beat him so badly that Hitler was in a coma for four days, which tells you just what sort of childhood Hitler had that prepared him to use. However, Hitler was a messenger during the First World War, mm -hmm. and he discovered the power that was involved in running back and forth between, between base camps along the trenches of Europe, delivering messages from one leader to another, but basically being pretty safe himself. Yeah. He didn't have to go over the top with his rifle. Yeah. He got to stay down in the trench and do this other job. These are desk murderers. Yes. They have this special category where by giving orders to other people, the other people do the killing for them, but the, the, the authority and the power that accrues to people who use serious violence in the form of being afraid of them by other people accrues to these death killers without their having to ever take any risk. Remember, when you learn to be seriously violent, at some point you have to confront someone who is seriously violent and just beat them up, yeah. put them in the hospital, hit them with a brick, whatever. That's the way you prove your credentials as a violent individual. That's a scary thing to do if you've never done it before or if you've done it once or twice and you've got beaten up even worse, as happens with a lot of children who try to attack the father who's beating them up, but they're not big enough yet or strong enough yet or fearless enough yet to make all that happen. So the death killer has this special place in, in the world where they can order other people. So in a sense, they can order as many people killed as they care to. Yes. Without ever having to take any real risks themselves. And talk about heady experiences of power. Yeah. They're Oh, imagine that's basically yeah. the kind of violent person Himmler was. He had been through the Heidelberg experience of learning to duel, 
you know, they, they, the fraternity guys used to put on a steel cage on their heads and learn to duel, and then they'd have a duel. And, yeah. and the really tough moment was when your dueling wounds were sewn up by the doctor without any anesthesia. That was the extent of it. For Very uh, you, theatrical you know, violence. He, he was a chicken farmer. Who was who was not in very good shape? I think if you see the pictures of him, he's one of those slack-butted guys that turn up in the military all over the that, place. That line in your book, if I looked like that, that quoting that guy, if I looked like Himmler, I wouldn't be talking about race. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the half-naked shrew. So, so Himmler really was repelled by the development of malefic violence on the part of some of his assessment. And that, more than anything else, led him to decide that they had to find some other way to kill these Jews, some other way that was more impersonal. Now, this is not a question of this, this I think, somewhat bogus idea that you have to uh, dehumanize someone in order to kill them. Not really. Well, you can kill people from way up in a plane somewhere. You don't even know what they look like. What you have to do is be prepared to use that level of violence without it breaking you down. In any case, Himmler saw these people breaking down one way or another and decided they had to find some more impersonal way to kill, some more industrialized way to kill. I mean, there is an analogy, and it's horrible to say this, but it's it's there in the literature. There's an analogy between the slaughter of animals for food. 100%. With the element of industrialized slaughter. It was easy when you had one, one steer once every six months that you and your family would, would hang up and kill and, and prepare for food. But when you have a whole city full of people, that's a lot of animals to slaughter all day, every day. You can see the analogy so pretty quickly. They developed a kind of industrialized process with special special people who only did little pieces of it. Someone did the, did the shot, and then someone did the throat cut, and they kind of parted it out in a way yeah. to make it to make it less totally traumatic. Yeah, and that's basically so. The first thing they tried was putting people in buildings and then blowing up the building, and that. Needless to say, it turned out to be a big mess all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. No, you're good. The next step was to take trucks, enclosed box trucks, and put a pack a bunch of Jews into a truck, lock the back door, and then run a, a pipe from the exhaust pipe into the box of the truck and asphyxiate the people inside. And I, that, I have I have to go back. Sorry. Sorry. No, no, we're good. I, I know I, 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 when, I, when I'm inserting something, it, it's these are things so I can kind of pull people into, like I said, my initial intent is to get people to go listen to this. So some things that kind of stuck with me, the blowing up the buildings, um, you have to understand when they were doing the, it was again, it was very just it was it was, you know, matter of fact, it was, well, what works here? What works here? You know, what shirt am I going to wear today for Mr. Rhodes? Should I wear this or should I wear another one? What am I going to do? And they were, okay, let's put them all in a pillbox and we put the dynamite in there. Did they not do it because it was too bad for the Jews? Well, no, what they realized was it destroyed a perfectly good pillbox. And also there was this big cleanup process where they had to go retrieve the arms and the legs from the tops of trees. So just again, to kind of pull people into why I think they need to get this book is the, every little thing we're saying, there's this huge backstory to. So the trucks, sorry, back to you. 
the next thing was to use trucks and they at least had from the point of view of this technology if you want to think of it that way it was technology killing technology to be sure the truck at least could be driven out somewhere where the bodies could then be pulled out and, and thrown into a pit i mean it's kind of an extension of the pit process but when people are asphyxiated they 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 cause a great mess. They throw up, they defecate, and so mm -hmm. forth. They had the same cleanup problem. So they eventually evolved the gas chamber. And it had several advantages. You, you would move the Jews, instead of going to each town and taking the town Jews out to the edge of town to a pit, you would take the Jews and put them on a train and move them to a centralized location, which had been built for that purpose, Auschwitz was a city. Yeah. It's a big place. Oh, yeah. visitors walk around all over the place and put them in barracks and hold them there. But as quickly as you can, you move them into <coughs> gas chambers, special built for the purpose, concrete buildings, box rooms with a, an entry on the top that was disguised as a shower head. Yep because you had to get these people to actually walk into these rooms. You couldn't just say, you're going to be gassed to death in this room. They might run the other way. So they were, but of course, by then they were so run down and exhausted and terrified and so forth. In any case, they would move them into these chambers, lock the door, ostensibly because they were going to be given showers to get rid of any lice and so forth. And then the gas would go in through the shower head at the top. When the people had all died, which took about 15 minutes, and of course was horrible, but nobody was watching now. You didn't have to see mm -hmm. their, their actions of death. Uh, you had some of the other Jews, the worker Jews that had been turned into workers in the camp, do the cleanup and the pulling out of the bodies. And they were then moved to a site where they were burned. And eventually whole crematoria ovens were developed and put in position to do these things efficiently. But it wasn't the efficiency. I've seen that in so much of the literature. Excuse me. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> and it bothered me a lot because there's also a claim in the literature that this was science that led to this kind of killing. Well, not really. It was the problem of what do you do with all these human bodies? What do you do with the human interaction with people? However much you may hate them or think they're inhuman or whatever else, you cannot see a woman and a child standing there and shoot them and yeah. see them die in agony yeah. without being moved. You just can't. I don't care how cold-blooded these people were. So they basically distanced themselves from the mess of killing lots of people in a small space. Yeah. So that, for example, and there were, you know, another thing the literature always misses is there were two kinds of camps. There were concentration camps where people were pulled together and worked to death. Mm -hmm. And Auschwitz-Birkenau was, in fact, both, which is why I think people get confused. And then there were death camps. And in the death camps, nobody went into a barracks. They went straight from the trains to the killing area to the gas chambers, and then to the to the fire. So there was no delay. It was just we. It was just a way of being more effective at the killing. So, but at places at the death camps, 
one of them that I visited in eastern Poland, there had only been 75 SS supervisors at that camp, killing thousands of people every day. The people who did the actual work were Polish prisoners of war and Russian prisoners of war. And, of course, they were expendable, so if they were traumatized, who gave a damn? Yeah. It was fine as far as the Germans were concerned. But but the limited number of Germans in the SS, to remember this was an elite force, presumably reduced the trauma, and of course did reduce the trauma. And that, rather than any of these other explanations, is the real way the concentration, the death camps came about. It's, it's, a, it's a grisly, grisly story, but it's very important. It puts it in the context of technology, and I say this with all due respect for our fighting in the war. We had a problem early in the war with the fact that our planes, even with this famous bomb site, the Northern bomb site, would sometimes hit a, a pasture five miles outside of town instead of the ball bearing factory that was supposed to be the target. And there are lots of technical reasons for that, but ultimately the solution was to decide that the only way you could really bombard France and Germany and attack the German industrial uh, capacity was to bomb the factories themselves. Yeah. And if you, that meant you killed the people who were working in the factory. Yeah. But after all, they were making those bomb bearings. Yeah. So they were, in a sense, enemy dangerous enemy. And then if that wasn't good enough, well, they lived in apartment buildings all around those factories where you could bomb those too. And that was justified as well. So we solved our technical problem, which was basically that given the conditions of anti-aircraft fire, the Norton bombsite was useless. (laughs) It had to, you had to fly the plane in a straight line for three, four minutes in order to set up this bomb this famous bomb site to, to hit the target. Well, who in his right mind with heavy anti-aircraft fire coming up is going to fly a plane in a straight line for three minutes? It yeah. couldn't be done. And as a result, we moved to area bombing, as it was called, yeah. and we began killing civilians by the tens of thousands. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's famous book about Dresden, he was there. He was an 18-year-old soldier who'd been captured and was lucky enough to have been billeted down seven stories below ground in a meat locker when the fires were started up by all this bombing, firebombing of mm-hmm. whole cities, burning down whole cities, that he was able to survive. But he told me, I interviewed him for the Paris Review, he said, we had to go into the bomb shelters and pull out all the people who'd been asphyxiated by the, by the gases from, from the bombing. And he said the Germans who did that got a daily ration of schnapps. We didn't get any schnapps. We had to do it cold sober. That was the punishment that was visited on him. So when a military is faced with a war, it starts out with, with following the rules, as everybody did in 1938. But as soon as the rules don't work anymore to achieve the objectives for whatever reason, and the reasons are usually technological, then you have to find some other way to do the job. And we found our ways, and the Germans found their ways. And that's the way the Holocaust evolved into an industrial killing process. 
there's this sort of meta theme going on within this podcast, right? Where, uh, where we bring up the Nazi or, you know, I brought it up. I won't put that on your shoulders. I brought it up and said, like, you find something in your heart and you go, oh, wow, this is right. And then you talk about the defense of these are fighting age males. And then it turns into, well, you got to take out the kids because they're going to grow up one day. And we look at this as how evil they are. But we sort of make this exception. We say we have to look into it and kind of see where they came from. And ironically, we both subconsciously, when we talk about the allies doing it, right? And my my great uncle was on D-Day. My dad's dad was going to be part of the mainland invasion of Japan. I have great respect for them. But even just you and I, I'm realizing as we do this, we take a completely different tone. We go not to talk bad about the military, but we had to firebomb Dresden. We had to nuke Hiroshima. In a, in a way, it's the same thing. It, it's defensive. And it isn't that fascinating that we look at the Germans and we go, mostly evil, but maybe you feel bad for them. And then when we talk about our, our own ancestors, we go, all good, a little bit of bad. And we see, oh, this is the psychology at work. It, it, it's- but the truth is, the truth is and, and I say this with all due respect for everyone who's fought in a war. Yes. Wars are inherently immoral. It's hell. It's it's murder. It's... I think lots of people to achieve an, an objective. I know the arguments, and they're all defensive arguments. Yeah. yeah. But you know, our, our, to go back to our Air Force, they wanted to prove, let me just trace the Air Force for a second. Where did the idea of air power originate? It originated with an Italian airman whose name was, I think, Douay, who had been in the trenches in the First World War. And he had seen that horrible, continual, endless, useless slaughter. Someone called those long trenches that were dug in those places in Europe the long grave already dug. And there are ways where you can find a parallel between the trenches of the First World War the slaughter of the First World War and the Holocaust, because yeah. Hitler saw all that. Yeah. And so did the Germans who fought in that war. And they had carried their strong memory of having lost that war, but also of how it worked. And some of the qualities that we're horrified with, with the Holocaust, derived directly from the kind of war that was. So Dewey thought, Jesus this is a terrible way to fight a war. We we fought for two years and we gained six feet. I mean, yeah. that's the level of yeah, no, yeah, the, the ball. It was just a fixed two trenches facing each other, bodies going back and forth and being slaughtered. That's what it was. Yeah. So he conceived this vision back when planes were still biplanes made out of wood, that there would be bombers that could fly over the trenches over the front lines, go back to the communities where the war material was being put together, bomb those, terrify the civilians to the point where they, he imagined, would rise up against their leaders and overthrow the government and sue for peace. That was the vision. And when the when Americans, like, like well, we know the names of our famous early pilots, uh, what was Billy, what was his name? Anyway, Jimmy Doolittle, there were a lot of guys who who were just captured by this vision of a cleaner way to fight a war. 
cleaner, at least for the for the people who were in the planes, not so clean on the ground. And the whole development of the Air Force during the Second World War had to do with its dream of proving that air power could do the job without all of this horrible slaughter on the ground. And of course, what happened is there wasn't enough firepower that a plane could carry until the atomic bomb. And then suddenly there was. Yeah. And, and Curtis LeMay was in charge of the firebombing of Japan. Yeah. He had some contempt for these atomic bombs because they weren't in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> they were later, let's to say. Yeah. But, but his he, he, he basically realized that the Germans had no, sorry, that the Japanese had no anti-aircraft uh, guns that could hit a plane flying at 5,000 feet. Their anti-aircraft fire was all designed for the B-29s that flew typically at 30,000 feet, way up in the jet stream. But they and they couldn't be cranked down low enough to catch a plane at 5,000 feet. Once he'd worked that out, and he had a lot of missions flown to check it all out, he told his pilots, all right, take all the guns out of your planes. Yeah. We're not going to take them. We're going to load your planes with high explosives and fire bombs, little six-pound magnesium or... Mm-hmm. or or uh, uh, jelly gasoline bombs, and we're going to drop a bunch of bombs, as Vonnegut said, to make kindling, and then we're going to drop our fire bombs and start giant firestorms that will burn up whole cities. And they succeeded. Yeah. The first, the first of these missions that that uh, he, that his people flew, which was in March of 1945, burned out 18 square miles of downtown Tokyo mm-hmm. and killed upwards of a half million people. That's equivalent to the first nuclear weapons. Yeah. So it really did work, and especially because, and he rationalized it all. He said there were drill presses left over from the burned out little houses all over the city because they did their work at home, Yeah. which was true to a degree, but that's, you know. It, yeah. So you can see this process, and and it helps, I think, all of us left, leaves us all feeling we have to find a way to prevent this as much as possible. And in the years since World War II, we have, basically. There's plenty of slaughter that still goes on, but remarkably little that we do. We have now perfected the, the little missile that will take out an automobile full of full of, of people we claim to be terrorists that they often aren't uh, and yeah. so forth yeah. and at the same time for the larger more massive prevention of war we have built up this holocaustal and i don't know of any other word that's appropriate armament of nuclear weapons oh, yeah. that if god help us we ever used uh, it would make the holocaust look look like a, a birthday party uh- I was about to say, yeah, and the difference between hydrogen bombs and A-bombs, I was about to quote Dark Sun, and then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm this is the author of Dark <laughs> I was about to, I was literally about to quote you to you, and I was like, That's oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, but it's, I was going to say, yeah, it's, and I know I said I'd only keep you for an hour, and I'm running, I would love to keep talking to you, but I want to give you an ad if you'd like. Um, but one thing I do really want to point to, and I think it's the crux of all of this, and it's the most important part of all of this, and it's the best analogy I can think of is I remember in general chemistry in college learning about like the hydrophobia, right? And it's chemicals that hate water. They stay away from water. 
And then when we went deeper into it and you realize there actually is no such thing as hydrophobia, it's just the molecules are more attracted to themselves than they are the water. So it has the appearance of they hate water, but they're actually, and to me, that always stuck with me because it was what you thought so clearly was one thing was actually something else, but they just look the same. To me, that applies to the entirety of the the Holocaust. What you thought was, you know, the German archetype of efficiency, what you thought was, and then I will I will say with Hitler, there was a lot of just black souled hatred. He just oh, he sure. just hated them. But but the fact is, uh, anti Semitism was general all over Europe. Sure. Everybody was anti Semitic essentially and and hatefully so in Germany. Sure. But so there were lots of political things that happened to the Jews. Sure. But the slaughtering process, once it got started, because they couldn't find any other place to put the Jews. They couldn't move into Madagascar and so forth. So what are we going to do with them? Well, I guess we'll have to kill them. Once that order went out, then it became a question of how do you do that? And And that's what militaries do. They find ways to do what they're ordered to do, essentially. Very much like we said just beforehand, we're talking about Mike Tyson. And you were like, you know, he was an example of give me the rules that I have to operate within and I will fight within them. And it's that. And again, it's not to take any blame away from the Germans. It's you gave them a goal and they did it. But the, the hydrophobic, hydrophobia, hydrophilic, what appeared as and the reason I brought up Hitler is because it's not. No, he did hate them. But what appeared as this blind uh, flaming hatred for Jews coupled with German efficiency was actually, and to me, when I first say this, it's going to, I'm going to preface this, it's going to sound like I'm justifying them, but what it actually is, is I'm pointing out just how much more evil it is. What at first, now I'll go about this, was actually the humanity of the Germans. As you quote in your book, no one has care for animals like we do. No one has care for uh, the human soul as we do. And They're going in and they're saying, do you know how hard it was to gun down those Jews? These men really were troubled. And it's like, but what about the Jews? And they don't they don't think about the Jews. They go, you know, Hans, he couldn't sleep for a week. And then so you see. And now this is what I was saying. It sounds like I'm protecting them. They were all about how do we do we turn them around? Right. As you said in the book, shoot him in the neck instead of the face. Right. Bring him into the trenches, right? right? Uh, uh, Bobby, Baba Yar, right? You bring him down there, and it's not until the very last moments do they they still think they're being resettled, and they're scared, they're naked, they're running, they see bodies, it's shock, and then Ginnett shoes, and it's over. Sardine and packing, yeah. right? You put them all in there. And this entire thing was so that they didn't have to be troubled themselves, right? And then we move to gas chambers, we move to, and then we don't even go in and get them. We make the Sonder Commando. The Jews go in and get them. No. So no. on the face... You see this like deeply human thing. We don't want to hurt ourselves. And then when you zoom out a little more, you go, and this is the point I want to make of this whole podcast, is it's very easy to look back and go, evil Germans, Nazis, you know, like a dragon coming out of hell. It's an easy enemy. You got to get rid of them. Nazis bad. And then you realize just how much more insidious it is and how much more prevalent it still is today is that they were doing it, and this is the thesis for the whole podcast, they were doing it because they thought they were protecting German women, their kids, 
their grandkids. They were doing it to take care of each other's mental state so that we have to do what our sons won't have to do. And once we do this, we will flourish forever. And we are doing the work and we do not take pride in it. We do not take money, but we do the work nonetheless. We don't take pride in killing these men. And if you see a man drinking while killing a Jew, you reprimand that man because we are humans. We are, we are the Germanic people. And yet, it wasn't just, we're evil and we're going to kill them. They truly thought they were setting up a beautiful life for their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids, and they were doing the work that other men were too weak to do. And that, to me, is the thing that scared, excuse my French, the living shit out of me. Because up until now, just like I always thought it was about efficiency, I always thought it was just pure hatred of Jews. And I now realize it was out of their love for each other that justified yeah. this. I can't imagine killing someone. Can I imagine killing someone because I love my mom and my dad and my brothers? You're right. And then you realize, oh, this threat will never go away for as long as humans walk the earth unless we read about it and we know where this very quickly we can go. It's for the greater good. And then you realize the Germans weren't just comic book Nazis. They thought they were doing it for the greater good. And that is what sent chills down my spine because I realized how many times have I thought I was doing something for the greater good? Oh, this is to protect my mom. This is to protect my brother. Oh, yeah. that. And you realize the road to hell truly is paved with good intentions. Hitler was evil. Everyone under him, they really thought, they really truly thought. A lot of them paused at the killing pits and said, I have a wife and kids. And then they would say, well, if you love your wife and kids, you'll kill these wife and kids. They, yeah. It truly came from their heart that they were doing the right thing. And to me, that is the most evil part of all of this. Because you and I, we think we're good people. We would never do what the Nazis did. Well, if we think we're good people, so did they. And that is why I think people need to read this and listen to this because it completely changes the dynamic. I always thought they were just comically evil bad guys, right? They thought they were doing the right thing. They truly thought they were doing the right thing. And as did we. we and as did we. As did we. The comic bound Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. I mean, I... I get that all the time because I wrote what I guess is now the divinity book on the development of the first atomic bombs. It's it's changed today. Young people who have no experience of war, um, um, any personal experience of war, the way I did as a child of World War II, are saying, how could we have done that? How yeah. could we have bombed cities full of Japanese people and killed upwards of 140, 150,000 people in one mass horrible bombing and you really do have to go back and look at the long length of the war how many people had died it was the most brutal war in human history it was like 75 million people died in the second world war we were so angry at the japanese for not surrendering we destroyed their air force we destroyed their navy we had their islands blockaded they were down to about a thousand calories per person they were going to starve to death in a short order and yet they still fought on and it was like what else can we throw at them that will make them see reason and believe it or not even then they didn't the leadership didn't decide to end the war because of those bombs yeah. the bombs contributed 
they decided to end the war because Soviet Union finally came in in Manchuria mm-hmm. on the 8th of August, 1945, the day before the Nagasaki bombing. And the Japanese leadership realized they were being attacked by big armies in two sides at once. And then they threw in the towel. Yeah. So I guess, you know, there are two things I want to add to what you said. Sure. One is there is an alternative to this this business of fighting, and it's been slowly developed across the history of the West, and that is the law. Being able to go to a court is the reason why courts of law feel a little bit like contests. They're kind of substitutes for violent contests. They they can have plenty of violence in them, but it's verbal, And, and there you can settle disputes within a framework of law and government uh, control of violence. Like, that, like that, Himmler dueling. Yeah, right. That gets lost when you're working between countries. So the whole movement of the last several hundred years has been toward some kind of international law that, that com- controls the larger frame Although I must say, I think the real reason for the ending of world-scale war was nuclear weapons. That's another kind of law. That's, well, you're welcome to have a war, but it's going to kill you too. So think about that, right? And uh, I forgot my other point. But anyway, the the point simply is we're finding ways across human history to to reduce the amount of personal violence in the world. Far fewer people are violent today than used to be. Far fewer people. One of the reasons Americans think they live in a violent society is because there's so little violence. Yeah. And it's so overplayed in the press. Yeah. That, you know? Yeah. The, the fact is the homicide rate is lower today than it has been throughout human history in this country. 5.4 per 100,000. Yeah. In medieval Europe... London in the 14th century, it was 54 per 100,000. Good Lord. It's... it's like in your city, Detroit, in <laughs> those days. And then people weren't shooting each other, they were clubbing each other to death with gun, with clubs and, and stabbing each other with their dinner knives. Yeah. So things have changed, and they've changed for the better. But behind that looms this larger specter. And there, I think the credit should go to science. Yeah. Science basically said, you want to find a way to release a lot of energy explosively? Let us help you. We, we know some energy that is really big. You know, the ball of plutonium that destroyed Nagasaki was about the size of a baseball. Yeah. It's about six kilograms. That was 22 thousand tons of TNT equivalent. So we bounded world-scale war. We have law that's that's reducing the level of violence with hot spots all over the place, sure. typically in places where people are oppressed in one way or the other. Yeah. African Americans in the United States, others in other places. Resource scarcity, yeah. So that but but when we have a modern war, as one of the scientists who worked on the bomb said to me, you know, what we learned is that if you want to add science to the technology of killing people, boy, we can bring to use some really amazing stuff. And he didn't say that happily, of course. Yeah. He was being ironic. But it's true. And it's reached the point now where 
the level of war is very low in the world. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If if you look at the yeah the the death rate by gross numbers and percentages, I mean, it starts declining yeah. in 1945. We still see Korea. We still see Vietnam. Right. We still see these genocides: Darfur, Middle East. Uh, the, the Uyghur Muslims in China. We still see all of the, the cartels yeah. in South America. We still see all this. But what you said about the, it's so low, it's like it's like how uh, when a self-driving car gets in an accident and that makes the news. Well, it's like when a plane crash makes the news. It's because they're yeah. so infrequent that it makes the news. We <laughs> are, right. and that's not to downplay the murders. That's not to downplay the school shootings. That's not to down, downplay the police brutalities. But it, it is, it's kind of what, right? It's, we know that there is something else we should be doing. And science kind of came in and was, you know, it's like if you uh, get, get, get caught drinking as like a kid or smoking cigarettes and, you know, your mom says, don't do it anymore. And your dad says, you're going to drink tequila. My dad never did this, but I have friends who their dad would be like, come outside. You're going to smoke the whole pack of cigarettes. And they'd smoke right. it until they threw up. Right. You know, logic didn't work. So it's not until everyone has a thermonuclear tipped warhead that we went, oh, maybe we can't. And. And it's an important thing to point out what you said about the the biplanes in World War One, and then right the Gatling gun. Right, he wanted to produce a machine gun so devastating that no one would ever want to do war again. Or I just finished a book about the arms of Krupp by uh, uh, Manchester, and he talks about uh, the complaints about the artillery weapons. They said, you know, previously with just muskets, you would you know, there's no disfigurement. You'd see a small hole in someone's head where a bullet went in, and that was it. With the, with the artillery, we're finding body parts, and the men don't yep. like that. We keep yep. thinking that if we make worse weapons, it will eventually scare everyone off from it. And it hasn't worked until nuclear weapons. And I think if there is some sort of law structure, it's kind of like sports, right? We get to We don't have to watch people kill each other in the Coliseum. We can just watch them duke it out on the football field. Still damages, but it's a lot more humane, right? It's Himmler in the, in the dueling. It's, we can sort of sanction it. And I think in all of my, I admittedly naivety as a 31 year old, I think that's where we're moving. We're under the constant threat of global thermonuclear Holocaust. It never went away. It never went away. The silos still work. Right. Maybe it's under that shadow, despite there still being pockets it seems like the thing that's probably going to stop warfare is not weapons at all, but probably ending resource scarcity. What is causing conflict? Yeah. Lack of food, water, shelter, medicine, and healthcare, and and and, and jobs. It's that's that's true. Old, and I think old, the decline, yeah. decline in war is pretty directly related over the centuries to the rise of the middle class. Increased crop you yields, yeah. Can you imagine a modern corporation if everybody was seriously violent? <laughs> yeah. Everybody would be knifing everyone else every in the country. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Elon Musk and Bezos would be sending... Yeah. Said, Look, let me make the king prosperous if you will protect us from these violent people in the streets. Yeah. And the king said, deal. Yeah. And that's basically the way this all got started. Yeah. And now at a point where... People don't even consider things like that. Yeah. But once upon a time, if you, uh, well, anyone who's interested in tracing the history of this kind of violence, excuse me, I'm getting a phone call. No, you're good. Yeah, it's just spam. Yeah. Uh, anyone who's interested in tracing the history should look at my book, Why They Kill, because I do in a small space at least a sketch of the history of the development. 
decline of violence in the West over the last 500 years. Absolutely. It's very real. And, and, but unfortunately, it's bounded by, by the presence of these holocaustal weapons in the background. Maybe that's the best our species can do. I don't know. Maybe we're so bloody violent at heart that we, we have to be, have a, a Democles sword over our heads all the time in order to function. I, I do think, I honestly think that's the case. You know, I am, I'm nice to my neighbor but I do keep a lock on my door, right? It's it's an yeah. armed society, it's a polite society, and it's kind of a, that might be how homo sapiens roll. Maybe we need thermonuclear we, weapons I, pointing at us, yeah. and then we'll the go. The trouble is, like all technological systems, sooner or later it's going to fail. Yeah. And then where are we? Up a tree, literally, I think. Well, <laughs> I, th- I think what we're doing is, is we have this sort of damage. I've had on Ken Albeck, who is the first uh, deputy director of biopreparat in the Soviet Union. He defected the United States in 1992. Okay. I've had him on here several times. Wow. He, he talks about in his book, Biohazard. Yeah, they were taking the nukes off of the warheads and they were putting in aerosolized smallpox, bubonic plague, yeah. tularemia. Yeah. And they at a certain point, you realize it's such mutual assured destruction that you can't ever use them. And what you just said, well, what happens when it all kind of goes to shit is, are we, are we done? I think what we're doing with this sort of Damocles is buying time to go to a different planet and become and then one planet can fail and maybe the other will say i think we're just buying time that that's all i don't think we found a cure i think we're buying time until you know we get to mars and then we get to pluto and then it's like all right now you can shoot the nukes like you know that's a little uncomfortably like soldier farmers moving into the ukraine i think yeah moving to another planet yeah i think Maybe we better fix this one. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. I don't. I don't. I don't like the the logic I just pointed out. I'm with you on that. Um, yeah. I can keep talking to you forever. I love your work, I but I I said I would let you go. And I, but it's interesting to take things apart and see how they work. It is. It's just too easy. You know. I must add one thing. Though. No, as much as you want, man. The historians of the Holocaust were mostly Western Europeans and Americans. And a lot of this story was was locked away behind the Iron Curtain through through the Cold War. A lot of the story of what happened in Ukraine and Eastern Poland and the Soviet Union, just, I mean, the Russians had no particular interest in telling this story, needless to say, and they didn't. But it's, it's since the end of the Cold War that, for example, that I was able to go over to Europe and travel from Lithuania down through Ukraine down uh, and the other countries in the eastern side, down through Poland and then Ukraine, and actually see the sites and actually talk to people who were there. So the story came out late, not merely because people didn't really want to look at it, and, and the Western Jewish tradition was much more scholarly and middle class than the Eastern tradition of, of uh, shuttles and and workers and so forth. So there were all these divisions that kept the story from being brought forward. And in that in that vacuum came theories like science caused this, anti-Semitism caused yeah. this. These things didn't cause it. What caused it was the problem of solving a problem that the boss had said you had to figure out a way to solve. That's ultimately what caused this. Yeah, yeah. It's... Hatred or not. Yeah. Yeah. 
you talked about it towards the end of your book, you know, with the number of deaths in communism in Russia and China, um, but because it's over a more drawn out period of time, we don't put it under a, a, a microscope as much, but really it's, yeah. it's the same thing. It's someone's perverted ideology, ideology, and they're demanding their people to carry it out with an iron fist for the yeah. elusive purpose of, for the betterment of you and society and do it defensively. And that's what results in hundreds of millions of deaths. God save us from death killers, death murderers. Yes, yes. You can order these killings and be aggrandized by them, uh, but never put themselves at real risk until the end. And then, of course, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. And then they take the way out. They don't. Have, they don't have yeah. to address it. Um, so, two quick questions. One is, um, so you you've talked about you know. You've, I'm sure you've probably just talked yourself tired of making of the atomic bomb and Dark Sun. It's those oh. are my favorite. Those are my favorite ones. Um, but it's definitely mine too. They were my first major books. Yeah, so. yeah, you have to. You gotta love them. about them. Yeah, Dark Sun, which I mean, I can quote all the time. I mean, not even preparing for this podcast, just off the top of my head. I mean, Dark Sun, right? I mean, uh, uh, uh was it go? Uh, Gold leafing. Now I'm gonna mess it up. A plutonium pusher plate, black purple, uh, black purple uranium pusher plate, gold leafing. Yeah, plastic. Yeah. Um. What is a breath of tritium, deuterium, effervescent as sea wake. Yeah, a breath of tritium. Uh, Ivy Mike, tragically Solomonic, evoking the powers that uh, evoking the fuels that power the sun. I'm butchering it now. I'm now I'm putting myself on the spot. I have quoted your book so many. When I listen to it, I just, I just, I can mouth it. It's a, it's like a song. Some people memorize like "Stairway to Heaven" by Led Zeppelin. I've memorized "Dark Sun" by Richard Rhodes, where I go through. <laughs> uh, we talked about in the beginning, right? Curtis LeMay, right? His, his, uh, his, his bombers taking off from Tinian and all the islands, like a thousand Japanese throwing stars glinting in the sun. Um, I love that book so much the gold leafing on the inside they got to find the reflectivity the long lines of the helium filled balloons and the long wooden tunnel and they put out the exotic right lanthanum and tarantulum and they want to find out what's going on and uh the exterior of the planes heating up by like 97 degrees fahrenheit instantaneously the teller light the i love it all so much and i i I do i have the chance to say that to your face so i needed to say that so i can die happy um and on and on that note, if I may have you on here again, which of your books would you like to talk about the most? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. We'll think about it. It's an emotional valence for me, of course. Yeah. No. So, I mean, why they kill would be a help to people because yeah. most people still don't. Most, most of the psychologists and sociologists, the criminologists who vet and lead the, the, the field of, of why people are violent really don't understand how people become violent. Sure. I think Lonnie Athens, this criminologist, has found, and this is something I would add to what we've been discussing. Okay. Why did I write about the Einsatzgruppen? I mean, it gave me nightmares for months. To do that research, of course, I've would been, anybody? I've been sick all week. One of the reasons, besides my taking offense with with uh, the book uh, "Ordinary Men," 
which claimed that these Einsatz Gruppen killers were just ordinary men who were able to become seriously violent overnight by being given the order to do so. I mean, what a crazy idea. Could you really tomorrow, you or I, walk out with a, with a rifle and line up people in a, in a pit and start shooting them in the head? I don't think I could. And I slaughtered animals on the boys' on farm where I grew up. Sure. That's a that's a that's a big big step psychologically, and yet here are these people claiming that that's the way these things work. So I was offended by that. I had just written why they kill. I knew about Athens' model. Athens built his model by interviewing at great length about a hundred violent criminals in prisons, and then putting together whatever they all shared in common in the way of previous violent social experiences. So he found, he did it, he, that's the way you find a new disease. You find people who have the disease, and then you look at what symptoms they have in common and what else, they, you know, what blood patterns and so forth. So Athens developed a model of violent development that, that obviously applied to the criminals he studied, but did it apply to people in a totally different context? And here was this, this, test case where the documentation was rich, the story was there, we knew what had happened, and we had some sense of the psychological effect. So I wanted to test Athens's violent socialization model in a totally different setup. And, and it, it worked perfectly. It fit just as nicely against the people in the Einstein's group as it had with the criminals in prison. The same experiences basically matched up in both cases, which makes me convinces me that his model of violence development is a universal. That that in fact is another reason is that when soldiers are trained to be combatant soldiers, they go through an institutional process of mm-hmm. breaking down identity, and then and then rewarding them for using controlled violence. That is an institutional version of violence socialization. And then the military's job after that is to keep them in defensive violence mode, hence all the laws against against atrocities and so forth that the military has. Anyway, it was a great test of this model, and I think it proved its universality. And that's something that would be interesting to reflect back in the discussion with criminal behavior at the private level, what I call private violence, which is somebody on the street and then hit two of the head. So that might be an interesting discussion because I've met who get Athens model instantly are always people who are either personally violent, police, lawyers, and people who work in the criminal justice systems. They always say, yes, of course. Yeah, and people who don't have that exposure typically say, "Oh, that doesn't make any sense at all." Yeah, they're violent because they were born that way, or they're violent because blah blah blah. Yeah, they're violent because they're prejudiced. They don't like black people or whatever. Yeah, so it's in a way the same kind of debate that was in a larger scale done during the Holocaust or during the research by historians of the Holocaust. Yeah, let me add one detail we left yeah. out, and that is. People talk about the greater efficiency of the death camps. And they were efficient. They typically processed 10,000 people a day. But Bobby Yar, the biggest of the Einsatzgruppen massacres that happened in 
in uh, uh, Kiev, Ukraine, in, in September of 41, I think, they murdered 31, 33,700 and something people in three days just by walking them down to this vast ravine. Bobby means grandma. Mm -hmm. Bar means ravine. This is a grandma, the grandma of all ravines. Having them lie down on the ground, shoot them in the back of the head, have the next group come in and lie down crosswise on the, on the bodies, the sardine packing method, as you said, shoot them and so forth. And that was just a few hundred soldiers and, and ansatz groups. So it wasn't more efficient to run them through the gas chambers. Yeah. In fact, if you think about the use of the military resources of the of the German uh, government during the war, they borrowed trains that they needed oh, yeah. to to move troops oh, and, yeah. and material to the front lines to move Jews. Yeah. So so people say, well, they they were. But from Hitler's point of view, the Jews were just that, as much yeah. enemy soldiers. That as was the priority ones. one. It was that yeah, was the bigger yeah. war, right? So another point that's worth making that people do. Yeah. Anyway, there are lots of things we could talk about, but maybe why they kill would be another one for I, you. I would absolutely. Then we talk about Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then we'll get into Mike Tyson. Maybe we can get Mike Tyson on here. But what you said is, and that's such an important thing, is you truly see because Hitler, and to quote you, right. He said the war will be lost if we win the war, but the Jews survive. That's why they were taking materiel. That's why they had men. I mean, these things didn't run themselves. They had these things took logistics. These things took resources, fuel. I mean, the fuel, train cars, crematoriums, gas. People were producing these, right? It wasn't for nothing. It was they truly they're. And to me, it's just that much more evil is above beating the Americans and beating the Russians was killing the Jews. And if there are um, if there are if there are two things I want to bring up again, just to get people to get the book that will maybe pull you into the evil of it is um, one. It's when they're throwing the bodies into the pits and covering them with quicklime. And then oh. not everyone was dead, and you could, you know, the, the 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 people nearby could hear the women and children screaming as they were boiled alive. So they'd rip off pieces of the clothes of the naked Jews and stuff it in their ears so they didn't have to listen. There's one thing, and another one is, um, uh, well, how about uh, the guy picking up the Jewish kids by the head by the hair and then shooting him in the back of the head? And then yeah. the third one was is when they're driving along, that guy's in the passenger seat of the car, and then the Nazi is driving. And uh, he notices around, and it's almost like he's hallucinating. He's like, the the ground is bubbling up, and it's, the the grass is kind of risking, and there's pockets of gas and smoke coming out. And it's like, what are there volcanoes in Germany now? And the guy stops and looks at him, and he smiles, and he goes, "Here lie my thirty thousand Jews." And it was the bodies decomposing and bloating, and the gas was causing the earth itself to lift up like little mountains. And the guy smiles, and here lie my 30,000 Jews. This is the importance of it, and it's why I went on that little tangent at the beginning. You have to look this stuff dead in the eye. You have to hear, again, right, taking the babies out and putting them, in the, um, putting them on the sidewalk outside of the hospital, and the soldiers go by and just kick them with their boots. I mean, yeah. the, the, the things will they'll melt your mind. And... Um, and well, on a much lighter note, I meant to say this. So my second point was is 
and I've, I've brought this up to other authors before. No one has written a book on what the strategic defense initiative was supposed to be. This is a complete 180 from the Einsatz group. In. Yeah. I can find lectures by Lieutenant General James Abramson, who was in charge of SDI under Reagan. There are some <laughs> old lectures you can find on YouTube and C-SPAN. There has not yet been a book written by it. And every time I interview an author, I always try to tell them afterwards. I'm like, will you write a book on SDI? No one has. And I just want someone to write a book on it. But I have a play which will be streaming from Washington in October. When is it? Sometime later this year. No, I guess it's in the spring. Uh, called Reykjavik. Okay. Which Reagan and Gorbachev had written. It's a two play. It's gotten great response from people. And it will be streaming out of Washington. Uh, Tonic Theater is the group that's doing it. But it's, I mean, that's really where, where SDI had its real influence because oh, yeah. Reagan really backed off of, uh, he and Gorbachev were within an inches. Yeah, we could have a deal. To begin the process of eliminating all the nuclear weapons in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's in, uh... Of course, Richard Pearl was in the background, like Iago, whispering in Reagan's ear, but then they won't want your SDI, Mr. Yeah. Yeah, the military industrial, the beast needs to feed, right? It's They had it, right? Him and Rick, we could have, I think that's the quote, we could have a deal. Do we have a deal? Why don't we get rid of all of them? And no no weapons in space. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Gorbachev. We do need weapons testing in space. We were so close, right? And that's where it went. Yeah, I will absolutely watch that. Um, it's a great story. Yeah. And made a great play. I found the, all the transcripts that basically built the play around around the transcripts that Paul Newman was a friend of mine and he was helping me. I would send him drafts and he would say, this still is too much, too much paper and not enough theater. He said, you do this one. The people are all going to be out in the parking lot, unlocking their cars, Dick. (laughs) (laughs) Roads. Yeah. 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 Except me, I'd be in there and I'll be like, go deeper into the literature. But yeah, you're right. I guess you need more mass appeal. If, so another time. Absolutely. This was fun. I'd love to do it again. I would thank you so much. And I, for sure. other pe- other people listening, another great book of yours, Energy, all about the Nukeman engines and the gas. It, it's all all your work is fantastic. I'm such a fanboy uh, of it. My new book, which will be out November 6th, which is called Scientist. And it's a biography of one of the great biologists of the 20th century. Oh. And E.O. Wilson, the great Ant-Man. Oh, well, I am looking forward to that one as well. If there's anyone that can write anything about anything, it is you, sir. I love your books so much. I can't even put it into words. Um, I will get I will get the next book, and we will set up a uh, another podcast date, and I will study up. And again, for everyone listening, please, Masters of Death, the SS Einsatz Group, and by Richard Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S. Please get it. It's about, what, a 10-hour listen on Audible. Speed it up a little bit. It's what I do with all the books. It, I do believe, is, and I've never said it before, and I will not say it again, I think there's an obligation to all of us listening to it. This is, I really do think it is your duty as a person to listen to it. And like I said, go through the same three stages I went through. Shock, nauseousness, and a cold sobriety. I was walking through Walmart listening to it, and I'm pretty sure people thought I had just seen a murder because I was just pale with my mouth open. I remember one woman said, are you all right, son? And I was going to say, yeah, but I'm just listening to a book by Mr. But instead, I just said, yes, ma'am. But 
you need to. It has touched me. My mom is going to get it. I've four straight nights. Mom, you got to get it. You got to, I don't want to listen. I, it, that sounds bad. And finally she's getting it. I think it is all of our duties to get it. It will disgust you. You will have nightmares. You will. I mean, you'll really just kind of find yourself stopping and staring at the wall. But all of these things are nothing compared to what these people went through. And if listening to it and feeling sick for a day is what you need to do to help prevent this happening for another generation, then I think that's your duty. And I think that's the least anyone can ask of you and the least we can ask of ourselves. And with that, Mr. Richard Rhodes, the legend himself, Dark Sun, making of the atomic bomb, the gold leafing, the breath of tritium, the deuterium, effervescent sea wake. Mike was tragically Solomonic, evoking the powers that fire the sun. Mr. Richard Rhodes, thank you so much, sir. God bless. And thank you so much. Take care. Yes. You have a wonderful evening. God bless America. Stay My safe, everybody. Stopped.